Good News Ministries of GNN.org presents The Story in the Bible. Now, here is Terry Modica. Okay, now we go back to the first book of Kings. This is where we really get into King Solomon and his story. By the way, there are three books of the Old Testament attributed to Solomon. He was a writer. His father was a musician. You know, it's all related. It's all artistic ability. Proverbs was written during his growing up stage of life. Each of the three books that are attributed to him reflect a different stage of his life. The first one is his growing up stage in which he was obtaining wisdom. Proverbs is a collection of wisdom. He wrote 3,000 Proverbs and collected many more and put them into that book of Proverbs. Then comes his stage of life in which he's getting romantically inclined and he's thinking of marriage and he gets married. As a matter of fact, he gets married how many times? 700 times. 700 wives and 300 concubines. Out of this stage of life, he writes the Song of Songs. Enjoy reading that sometime. We're not going to spend time on it now, but if you like reading romance novels, if you like watching racy movies or TV shows, just stay in the Word of God. But what this shows is not just what Solomon was going through emotionally, but the Song of Songs is also representative of the church, us, seeking the Lord. It's about lovers seeking each other and finding each other. The third stage of Solomon's life is marked by his old age in which, as I'm about to describe, he really blows it. Ecclesiastes was written actually about three years before Jesus was born, so it wasn't Solomon who wrote it, but it was attributed to him because what Solomon learned in his old age after spending years of blowing it And the blowing it started with those 700 wives and 300 concubines. And I'll explain why in a minute. But at the end of his life, he realizes that all of everything he had pursued that was not with God was a waste of time. All is vanity. All is meaningless. That's the point of Ecclesiastes. It says it over and over again. Solomon realized it, and three years before Jesus was born, someone wrote it down. Solomon started off as a brilliant judge and administrator. Judge, again, meaning a military leader. But, unlike David, who was righteous, and righteous means recognizing sin and repenting, Solomon did not want to recognize his sin and did not want to repent. He did not want God to correct him. (laughs) Don't we do that sometimes? He made the nation very wealthy through international trade. He secured the nation's peace. That's why he married so many of these women. He secured the nation's peace not by conquering them through God's power, but by marrying their women. He made compromises. He made treaties. And to seal the treaties, he married the women. Because if he married women from these other nations, then those other nations would not attack. And in the process of bringing in all these outsiders, women, he was bringing in their worship of the false gods. And because they were his wife, they were in a key position there. They were married to the king. So they had influence on him. And that made a statement to the rest of Israel that maybe there's nothing wrong with making these compromises. Maybe there's some value to worshiping some of these other gods. 
The more Solomon became rich and powerful and respected, which was increasing big time, he became the richest, most powerful, most respected king of the world. And the more he became this, the more he began to rely on these things instead of on God. And his decline began. He spent so much of his people's money to build lavish building projects and lavish defense funds that there was a money shortage. Inflation hit. He resorted to forced labor and high taxes in order to continue his projects. He went beyond his means and he forced his own people into slavery to get his goals accomplished. Some of the children, as a result of the worship of these other gods coming in, Solomon allowed altars to be built to these other gods in his own territory and some children began to be sacrificed to Moloch right near Jerusalem, the god Moloch. Israelites began to follow the example of these foreigners. Solomon's kingdom was supposed to attract other nations to God, and instead Israel was attracted to the other gods. Their values were corrupted. But God had promised David that he would never take the kingdom from his child Solomon and from all of his heirs. He promised David he wouldn't kill him off. He kept his promise, even though Solomon was screwing things up big time. God also warned that Solomon, as wealthy as he was, after he died, his property, his territory would be plundered. And in the end, in the end, Solomon's son, the one son that he had left, with all those wives and concubines, the one main son that he could rely on to take over the throne was Rehoboam. And he only had one little territory left. The territory of Judah was all he was able to rule. And here's how that happened. This starts with chapter 12 in the first book of Kings. Rehoboam was raised by Solomon to be very prideful king. Not with God in charge, not God as the king that he was serving, but he was king himself. And the conditions of Israel just continued to get worse. The people were not very happy at all with this turn of events, with things getting worse and worse and worse. They had hoped that when Rehoboam came along that that he would make things better than his father had left it. Things are getting worse. So the people said, let's choose our own king. And they picked Jeroboam. Jeroboam had been in charge of Solomon's forced laborers, slave laborers. He had been placed in this high position in the kingdom. So the people revolted. Jeroboam then led ten tribes to secede from the kingdom because Rehoboam refused to give up the kingdom to Jeroboam. And he wasn't supposed to give it up because Jeroboam was not of the right tribe for God's plan to produce Jesus. So he ended up with ten tribes. Rehoboam ended up with two tribes that really became one tribe, Judah. The ten tribes that Jeroboam became king of were the northern tribes. Judah was the southerners. Judah and Israel, they were now called by these two different names. They were now two separate nations. And this happened about 950 years before Jesus. It's a civil war that never really ended, except when outside enemies attacked. 
then they would either ally with each other to defeat the enemy or they would ally with the enemy against each other. The people that Jeroboam took in his ten tribes, when they seceded, they no longer, these people of the ten tribes, no longer had access to Jerusalem. By now, Jerusalem was the cult center, not occult, the center of worship of God. And they no longer had access to this. And it had already become a yearly ritual to do pilgrimages to honor God in Jerusalem. The people of the northern tribes did not have access to this anymore. So Jeroboam wanted to find a solution for that. He set aside two sites, one in Bethel and one in Dan, to be centers of worship. And in each place he put golden calves to serve as God's thrones. Remember the golden calf on Mount Sinai with Moses and the early Israelites? But this was to worship God with, you see. This was God's throne. It was to be a replacement for the Ark of the Covenant being God's throne. God had said that only the Ark was to be his throne. Jeroboam was saying, no, 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 no. We can't go with that plan. We need our own throne here. And since there's only one Ark, we'll make golden calves be the throne. He set up his own group of priests. Not the Levites. He set up his own loyal followers to be the priests. God sent a prophet all the way from Judah up to the northern territory to try to stop him, to warn him to stop. Jeroboam didn't listen. The people didn't listen. So God actually split the altar at Bethel from top to bottom to show who's in charge. Back in Judah, Rehoboam did nothing to discourage paganism. And over the next two centuries, things just kept getting worse and worse and worse. Syria became a threat. Judah fared better than the northern tribes because of God's promise to David that out of Judah would come the Messiah. But the human and financial resources were being used up. In Israel, the ten northern tribes, they went through 20 kings from nine different families over the course of those two centuries. Judah went through 12 different kings from one family. We had to keep that one family going, so we got that line to Jesus. Israel, the northern section, Israel's 12th king, this is in chapter 16 of the first book of Kings. Israel's 12th king was named Omri. He wanted to have a capital as good as Jerusalem, where not only worship could take place, but it was the center. It was a capital that was as good as Jerusalem or better. So he bought a hill built a citadel on it, and named it Samaria. Remember the Samaritans and the problems they were in Jesus' day and how they were outcast? They were considered outcast by the Jewish people. The Jewish people that Jesus was ministering to were the people from Judah, that section, the southern section. And Samaria was the replacement of Jerusalem put up in the northern section. So, of course, the Judah people, the Jews, developed a prejudice against the Samaritans. Omri had a son named Ahab, and he married Ahab to a Phoenician princess, someone outside the faith, named Jezebel. (laughs) You recognize the name Jezebel. She was a practicing witch, deep into witchcraft. He married Ahab to Jezebel to form an alliance with Phoenicia so that they wouldn't have to go to battle and be defeated by Phoenicia. Ahab, when he became king, 
built a temple to please Jezebel, worshipping the god Baal. Now remember, I started out mentioning Baal. I said he's going to come back into the picture again and again. Jezebel brought worship of Baal into the Jewish faith or into the Jewish people. And Ahab dropped all pretense of being a follower of God at that point. He didn't even try to put up an act. Baal became the official state god. This is all up in the northern territory here in Israel. Elijah is needed now. Elijah, a big name, right? Difficult times requires a very special prophet. This is in chapter 17 of 1 Kings. Baal is now the official god of the Jewish people who are in the northern tribes, in the Samaritan territory. Elijah became as great as Moses and Samuel. His name, Elijah, means Yahweh is God. Not Baal. Yahweh is God. That's what Elijah means. So Elijah is sent by God to Samaria to prove that Yahweh is the true God of Israel. Baal was the God of storms. So the first thing that God did through Elijah to prove that God is more powerful than Baal was at Elijah's word, God stopped all the rain and even the dew from coming to the northern tribes of Israel. And when Elijah decided that they got the point, then Elijah's word is what ended the drought. Well, do you think Ahab and Jezebel were very pleased with him? Especially Jezebel, who was the one who had brought Baal into here. I mean, Ahab was wimpy. He went with whatever his wife said. So Elijah had to flee from Israel for his life. Elijah goes to Sidon, S-I-D-O-N, which is Jezebel's home territory. It's where she came from. He went right to where Jezebel least expected to find him. And he went there to hide. He met up with a widow who was starving to death. They were down to the very last bit of flour and oil. And she had a son. And they were getting ready to die because they had nothing left to eat. Elijah picked them. He was led to them by God because in the midst of Jezebel's territory, these were people who still loved God, Yahweh, the true God. The famine that had been caused by this drought that Elijah had brought on the land had reached this territory, which is why this family was starving. So Elijah said, take me into your home, protect me there, let's worship the Lord together there, And the Lord will protect you from starving. So here we have the multiplication of the food. It didn't just happen when Jesus was around. It happened long before then. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus, actually. God multiplied her oil and her grain, and it never ran out. At one point, her son even died, and Elijah raised him from the dead. It wasn't just Jesus who could do that. This is in the 17th chapter. And we're about to go into the 18th chapter. As a matter of fact, right now. Almost three years later, Elijah returns to Israel. Now, Israel does not include the Judah tribe anymore, remember. It's just the northern section. There were 850 Baal prophets or priests there that Elijah now was going to confront to prove once and for all to the people that God was greater. He gave them a challenge. He said, You... And me. Let's 
see whose God is greater. We'll both offer up a bull for a burnt offering, but we won't light the fire. Let's see whose God is powerful enough to light the fire. And he gave the Baal worshippers a head start. They put their bull on the altar, stacked it with lots of wood around it, and began doing their chants. And they began doing their orgies and everything else that went along with Baal worship. They beat themselves as part of Baal worship. I mean, this is demonic. This is demon worship. They did things that were unkind to themselves and unkind to others as part of the worship. They shouted for days. They did wild dances. They slashed themselves. And Baal never lit that fire. Finally, when they practically killed themselves all off in their efforts to get Baal to light this fire, Elijah said, okay, now it's my turn. But before I pray and ask Yahweh to light this fire, throw water on it. Throw more water on it. Throw still more water on it. Let's get it drenched. Let's get it flooded here. And then he did one little brief prayer. And poof, lightning came out of the sky and burnt the whole thing up in a second. Now, if that wasn't proof enough, what else do we need? And by the way, in that case, fire proved that God was the real God. That God himself is real. Moving ahead in time, we see a parallel. In the book of Acts, on Pentecost, in what form does it seem like the Holy Spirit descends? Fire. And what was accomplished then but to show the world that God is real? Well, Jezebel got upset at what Elijah was able to accomplish. And rather than learning from it, she said, ah, we've got to do away with this Elijah before he turns everybody away from Baal worship. So she definitely decided that this time she was going to kill or get him killed. And, of course, Ahab did nothing. He was just influenced by his wife. Elijah never did get killed. Elijah was protected by God. I'm going to skip some of the story. Elijah fled to the mountains. You know how he was listening for God. You know, he was afraid. You know when we're in fear, we can't see God? We can't hear God? We look for God, but fear blinds us to him. Elijah expected God to be in the thunder and the earthquake and all that, and he didn't see him. It was when he finally got quiet enough to still his spirit, calm himself, and we can only be calm when we have no fear. When there's fear, do you ever feel peaceful? When he finally got quiet, could he hear God's still, small voice? And that's when he was able to be reconnected with God. Because he got rid of the fear. Elijah goes on to continue his ministry. He takes in another man who wants to be like Elijah. And his name is Elisha. The two of them are, become inseparable as Elijah teaches Elisha everything he knows. And he's going to pass his mantle of the ministry on to Elisha when Elijah's turn on earth is up. And when Elijah knows his turn is up, and by the way, he's another one who's assumed directly into heaven. And this is in chapter 19. It's done very dramatically here. It was in a flaming chariot. He didn't die. He went in a flaming chariot directly to heaven. And Elisha saw it. 
But before this happened, Elisha and Elijah were talking, and Elijah said, what would you like to receive from my gifts before I go? What would you like God to give you for your ministry? And Elisha, figuring, well, you know, God's a generous God, and God's infinite. I want twice as much, Elijah, as what you've got. I want my powers and my gifts to be twice as good as yours, twice as strong as yours, twice as powerful. And Elijah says, well, I think he might be asking a lot here. I didn't quite expect that answer, but hey, here's how we'll know this is God's will for you to receive this. If God allows you to see me when he takes me to heaven, then God will give you what you ask. And that's exactly what happened. And in fact, the rest of Kings and into the second book of Kings shows us that Elisha did twice as many spectacular miracles as his mentor Elijah had been. While Elisha was the prophet that God was working through, the army commander of the Israelites was named Jehu, J-E-H-U. And one of Elisha's students, see, when you were a prophet, you taught other people. You didn't just keep the ministry to yourself. You wanted to pass it on. And Elisha was not Elijah's only student, but he was his star pupil. Elisha, in turn, had his students that he taught. And one of those students anointed Jehu. Remember what anointing means? Gives God's authority to that person and God's power. By now, Ahab was dead. Jezebel was not dead. Ahab and Jezebel had had 70 sons all of whom were supporting and encouraging Baal worship. So Jehu, anointed by God for ministry as an army commander, proceeded then to wipe out Baal worship from Israel. And the way he did that was by destroying Jezebel and all of her male heirs. And every supporter and every Baal worshiper was destroyed. And that's in the second book of Kings, chapter 9. So Baal worship for a time was cleansed out of Israel. Baal worship was also going on down in the Judah territory. And while all this was going on in Israel, in the Judah territory, a king was raised up named Jehoshaphat about the same time that Ahab was king. Jehoshaphat was basically a good king, and he did his best to stop Baal worship in Judah. His downfall, however, was that whenever an enemy threatened war with Judah, he made foreign alliances, which involved compromises, ended up with compromises, instead of trusting God. So things were better in Judah, but they were still going deeper into problems. And in order to address this issue... God needs to send forth more prophets like Elijah. Now, Elijah was a prophet for the Northern Territory. God's got to raise up prophets for Judah. And these stories are told and their prophecies are told in the books of the latter prophets. You've been listening to Story in the Bible. For more faith builders or to learn more about this ministry, come visit our website. You'll find online resources and lots more to help you know the Father's love and grow closer to Christ and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Visit GNM.org today.